Welcome to the Truth to Power podcast from Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. These recordings were originally streamed as live webinars where we brought together key people from across the church and society to discuss significant contemporary issues. In this first episode, the discussion centres on the impact of COVID-19 on black, Asian and minority ethnic communities in Britain. Good evening and welcome to what promises to be an hour of sterling conversation and fascinating debate. My name is Richard Reddy and I'm the Director of Justice and Inclusion at Churches Together in Britain and Ireland or CTBI. I'd like to welcome everyone to this webinar, which is being live streamed via CTBI's Facebook page. And I would like to welcome everyone who's listening via that particular platform. This evening, we will be uh, exploring the devastating impact of COVID-19 on Britain's Black, Asian, and minority ethnic communities in Britain. I'm sure that likely you saw that very disturbing montage of doctors, nurses, and care workers who had died uh, during the first uh, couple of weeks of this initial outbreak. And like me, you're probably familiar with those statistics which suggest that Black Britons are more uh, four times more likely to die of COVID-19 than their white peers. And then there, there, are, there are the stories of the BAME workers who are at the front line of the uh, struggle to uh, tackle the COVID-19 virus. And many of them are saying that they do not have the right PPE equipment to actually do their jobs. And the existing data seems to suggest that this disproportionality of the virus's impact on BAME communities is reflective of the ongoing inequality and racism that exists in this country. Well, helping us to unpack uh, many of these issues are three of the keenest minds in Britain's churches in the form of Les Isaac, OBE, Dr. Chichi Ektaho, and Dr. John Myers, OBE. Now we're very keen on ensuring that this is a, uh, an interactive uh, conversation because we know that this issue is, is creating real disquiet within BAME communities in Britain and other communities as well. So what we're encouraging you to do is to send in your questions, especially those of you who are listening via Facebook. Please do this uh, while I'm speaking and also while our panelists uh, are speaking as well, so that we can really hit the ground running once they finish their preambles. We'll do our best to uh, put all of your questions to our speakers. However, we can guarantee that all your questions will be answered uh, during our time together. What we will do is we will pull the questions together alongside answers, and then we can actually email them to you uh, after this particular conversation. Now tonight's format is pretty simple. Um, our three guests will speak for a short time uh, and then they will uh, answer your particular questions. So without 
further ado, as they say, I'll start by um, inviting Reverend Les Isaac to speak to us about how he became involved in this particular issue and what the churches can do. Over to you, Les. Thank you very much, Richard, and good evening um, to you all. If I was in the Caribbean, they'll say a pleasant good night to you all. That's just part of culture, particularly those folks in the Caribbean listening. I, I've been serving as a minister in the city and the nation for just gone 40 years. And I've seen many things, and I've also walked along many people, particularly when they feel that an injustice has been done to them. Um, when COVID-19 hit the shores here, in fact, I was stranded a bit in Ghana and West Africa, and I came back. And when I came back, I was amazed and alarmed to really discover the amount of, first of all, medical professionals who were dying of this disease. And I remember one of the first thing I did was to look up the Spanish flu in 1819 and had a look at you know, the impact there. And one of the questions I was asking, how many doctors and nurses would, had died in that occasion. But what caught my attention was the fact that there were, seems to be an alarming statistic of Black, Caribbean, Asian, um, who, and Africans who were dying in particular on the front line. And then I began to hear stories about nurses gathering together and praying before they went on duty. And they were praying together. And I knew that over the years, we've had all kinds of things in the NHS about Christians, you know, displaying their faith. But knowing that now nurses were getting together before shift and after shift, and they were praying. And I just I asked the question, what were they praying about? Well, they were anxious about the fact that uh, they were called to go on duty and there was inadequate PPE for them. They were called to go on a ward in terms of they were redeployed to a ward, which it was really frontline ward, and they hadn't had the equipment, proper equipment, plus the fact they were felt, you know, I may die, but not only that, I may have to take this thing back home to my, to my family. And I got involved because I realized there were three issues here. First of all, spiritual and pastoral. And, and I asked myself the question, um, I have a role spiritually and pastorally to respond to the needs of these people. Spiritually means I'm going to pray for them. Pastorally means I'm going to get beside them and I seek to identify with them with this need. Then the second thing was, what can I do? As I prayed with people, talked to people, what can I do? Well, they were calling out, we need PPE. And I felt, well, my faith is not just spiritual, it's got to be practical. And that's one of the reasons why we launched this COVID-19 um, BME um, appeal, because we want to be able to say to people, if you haven't got it, whether you're working in a care home or you're doing something in a community, here is some PPE that you could use to protect yourself. But the third matter for me was a matter of justice. And when somebody in your congregation or in your community tells you that they feel that they're not listened to, they feel that they may be victimized, when they feel that they've been asked to go somewhere where their managers and their boss know that they, they 
all their family got underlying problem and they've been totally ignored. I feel as a minister, as a Christian, then I need to be part of that voice to cry out for those individuals. And so I'm involved here. And I say to people, I'm passionately involved, whether they're Filipinos, whether they're Asians, whether they're Africans, whether they're Caribbean, whoever they are, if there's a matter of injustice, I've got to give my voice to it to cry out so that this thing could be resolved. So I'm involved. And I want to say to everyone who's listening tonight that, you know, we've got to ensure that lessons are learned, but this never happens again. One of the key things that I found out about the folks here, well, doctors and nurses, all of them are totally committed to serve in the hospital, in their, in their community people. And so because of that, I feel I need to stand with them. Thank you. Thank you uh, very much, um, Les Isaac, for that. Uh, and without further ado, I'll call upon uh, Dr. Chichi to come and talk about some of her work um, and uh, how she became involved in all of this. Thank you very much, Richard, and hello to you all and good evening. As Richard said, my name is Dr. Chichi Ekator. Thank you for joining us and for your concern and support to tackle the impact of COVID-19 on the Black and Asian minority and ethnic community. Thank you once again to CTBI for hosting this very timely and pressing conversation as we explore together the impact of COVID-19, the crisis on the BAME communities in Britain. I will be talking about the practical work that we are doing, whereby faith leaders and churches and community philanthropic leaders can get behind and support us at this time. So this evening, I'll be speaking from three perspectives. Firstly, as director and trustee for Ascension Trust. Secondly, as a BME doctor, um, who is not on the front line, but you know, I have colleagues, I have friends who are actively on the front line. And thirdly, as a Christian leader in my community. So a little bit about me. Professionally, I am a GP in South London and a GP appraiser for NHS England. I have been a clinical lead for domestic violence and abuse in a CCG area that I previously worked in. I'm also a member of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health. And in the past, my philanthropic interests have taken me on medical mission trips, leading teams of clinicians to the Caribbean, to Ghana, to Nigeria, to Uganda, advising government in some, some of these countries, both locally and nationally, as well as corporate bodies in leisure and health industries. So this issue that was highlighted and literally on my doorstep as a BMAE GP, felt almost so natural for me to get involved with standing together the community appeal. You know, it's so close to my heart because I've seen 11 colleagues, 11 GPs nationally die of COVID-19, 10 of whom have been from Black and Asian minority ethnic backgrounds. And overall, the impact on my profession has been vast. For example, 44 Filipino health and social care workers have died from COVID-19. And this accounts for 20% of the deaths of health workers in the UK, despite only making up 
3% of the NHS and the social care workforce. So the figures are stark and I won't repeat the figures, but the reality is that the risk is still very real for, for many people and it's very much more heightened for, for some. So as a Christian, I'm a Christian, my faith is so important to me, especially at times of crisis. I'm an active member of my community and COVID-19, as I said, it was in my backyard and, and still is. I lead the children's ministry. We've had to reorganize and support our children at this time. I've got two boys, you know, who were primary school age myself. So I'm very much in the national battle with everybody else as we seek to keep our children educated, motivated and, and safe from harm. Um, I've also been a primary school governor in a Church of England primary school in the Southwark Diocese. And my role covered health and safety, special educational needs and disability, the welfare of faith and community and the school community. So therefore, in all of these fears, I continue to hear of people's concerns informally and formally. So as a trust, as a charitable organization, Ascension Trust teamed up with key partners and organizations, and we formed this alliance that we called very aptly Standing Together. We are an alliance of doctors, an alliance of nurses, social workers, counselors, faith leaders, and organizations seeking to respond practically to the personal safety, the health and psychological needs of the communities that we represent, those we live with, those we pray with, those we do life with, those our children play with. So we conducted two surveys amongst health and social care workers and the community, and the results of our surveys and conversations fell much in line with wider surveys from organizations such as the British Medical Association, such as the Royal College of Nursing, highlighting the need for support for things such as access to adequate PPE. We also gave the community and these health and social workers the platform to speak in safe capacities about their realities of losses, their illness, their health concerns, their safety concerns, the jobs that are at risk. You know, for example, locum doctors have no work at the moment. And some express their inherent fears of speaking up. And more specifically, as a Christian, as a, as a Christian alliance, we ask them, how can we help as a Christian community to meet these needs at this time? And we were overwhelmed by the urgency to respond to their needs and indeed the needs of the wider community that we serve. So as a group, as standing together, we took a three-pronged approach. We took a practical support approach for those who are more at risk by virtue of what they do for a living. Hence, we launched the PPE appeal that Reverend Les Isaac OBE mentioned. We wanted to reach the frontline workers in our community and our social care so that no life is lost unnecessarily. Dr. Jo Myers will elaborate on that in terms of her work representing 62,000 nurses in the UK. So secondly, we also took a psychological approach and some of the medics supporting the appeal launched a social media mental health campaign specifically for the BAME community as part of Mental Health Week last week. And Dr. Jo Myers will also elaborate on the assistance that we've had thankfully from churches who've come forward from BMAE Christian communities to help us and to collaborate. I also want to talk about the health approach that we have formed and that we are taking. 
So we formed a clinical standing together sub-community and we reflected on the psychological and physical cost of COVID-19. We also reflected on the barriers that some patients from vulnerable groups expressed in accessing timely healthcare, either as a result of fear, mistrust, or indeed lack of recognition of early symptoms. Hence, I am now leading a medical and mental health project on behalf of Ascension Trust, on behalf of our partners, and alongside a growing cohort of GPs, surgeons, psychiatrists, a Dartsea fellow, strategic nurse advisors, allied health professionals, and volunteers that will seek to provide an advocacy, an advisory, and a liaison service and platforms to reach those disproportionately affected by COVID-19, to help them navigate the healthcare systems and to get the medical advice and assistance that they need at such times of national crisis and anxiety in a very inclusive context where they feel understood, where they feel free to express their spirituality and their social and cultural perspective. This is absolutely key. We are harnessing the, the, the opportunities of digital technology, which has proved itself for all clinicians at this time of COVID-19 pandemic. And we are having very many useful conversations with our partners, but the need is still very great. Also, we're also reminded that we must not forget the children, as I alluded to earlier. And one of our clinical team members is doing some work in this area. So going forward, we hope to publish further details of our medical initiatives in the coming weeks so that we can galvanize the support, the funding and the resources that it will demand. So in light of a possible second peak in the autumn, I just want to ask us to reflect what will be our Christian response? What will it look like now and in the months to come? So Standing Together is seeking to build more alliances. We mobilize an ecclesia of partners, equipping these partners to serve to salvage lives, but also to tackle the anxiety and the mental health impact and to break down those perceived health barriers within community groups that we serve and those impacted disproportionately by the disease, either directly or by grief and loss, by anxiety and depression, and by underlining health factors, and also by societal and structural impediments. Furthermore, as I close, we know that many of those disproportionately affected will need their faith and they will need their faith communities more than ever and in much deeper and more innovative ways at this time, as well as the established ways of, of pastoral visits and also prayer, spiritual support. But we need all of this and much more to mm. tackle this public health emergency and the imminent psychological tsunamis. So as Lord Crisp, who was the fifth chief executive of the NHS said last Friday at another webinar, he put it so succinctly, and it's this, it is what happens in the community that gives you the health to develop. So I just want to leave us with that. And as we take more questions, we will further elaborate. So thank you, Richard, for this opportunity. Thank you very much for that, uh, Dr. Chichi. And without further ado, I will uh, bring uh, our third speaker, uh, who is uh, Dr. John Myers. Uh, Dr. John, please tell us something about yourself and the work that you're also doing as part of this coalition. Um, thank you very much, Richard, for inviting me along tonight. And it's just a real honour to be working with both Dr. Chichi and Les Isaacs as the um, head of Ascension Trust. When I first saw the, the figures and the statistics regarding 
the disproportionate amount of BME, BAME, Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic um, healthcare staff, health and social care staff that were passing away, that were dying as a result of COVID-19. I felt, what is the church doing? We need to get together as a church collective as a response to what's happening. So just to go back, I'm um, a council member of the Royal College of Nursing, which is a trade union and professional body for 450,000 nurses in England. And I I'm the member, the membership representative for London. I'm also a Florence Nightingale Foundation trustee and director where we actually teach and train and support um, nurses in leadership roles. Um, as also, I'm a local pastor in the church in Croydon and I work with Ascension Trust. I've been working with Ascension Trust for a couple of years now, going on medical missions overseas. That is my passion. Wherever we, I think the church needs to be really practical in what we do. And that is the reason why I wanted to work with Ascension Trust to bring about solutions for this major crisis that we're going through. And working with the Royal College of Nursing, for me, they're 100% behind front centre, ensuring that the voices of nurses are heard, that they are protected, that we actually do what we can to support our health and social care workers on the front line. And what we found when we set up this um, collective together with nurses, mental health nurses, um, specialist nurses, um, social workers, counsellors, psychotherapists, GPs, doctors and others that were all Christians from a Christian background, collected from different churches. As we got together and we heard everybody's views of what was happening on the front line, wherever they came from, they were all saying the same thing. Those that worked in the NHS or social care or in the community settings, they all said they were living in fear. Some of them were petrified at the thought of going to work and not having adequate PPE. We had one GP that said when he's in the GP surgery, he's got all the PPE that he needs, the personal protective equipment, but when he does his locum work in the A&E department, he has less than adequate um, supplies. I hear from nurses all the time. I sort of coach and support and mentor nurses and they get in contact with me and tell me of their fear and anxiety where they're being moved from areas of low COVID, um, where there's no low risk of COVID to a very high risk area. And when agency nurses, when they go along to these wards, they're being told, bring your own PPE. I mean, I found that really astonishing that you've employed agency nurses, bank staff nurses, and then you're telling them to bring their own PPE. So there's disproportionate ways that they're treating staff. Untreat I think there's a structural inequality in way staff are being treated, whether in the hospital environment or in the community setting. And for those in the community that we heard from, those in care homes, those going from door to door as health visitors, school nurses, social workers, many of them feel that they're not being heard or listened to by their managers. And we felt, what can we do to help you? And they said, we need to have the PPE. We passionately want to do our work, but if we're not protected, then we're going to be at risk and our family is going to be at risk. And I heard one nurse tell me that she, before she leaves her house to go on her 12-hour shifts, she has to psych herself up to leave the house. And the one-hour journey to get to work, the whole time she's convincing herself, I need to go to work because my colleagues need me. If I'm not there, who's going to support my colleagues? I need to go to work because the patients need me. So it takes her a whole hour. And when she gets to work, sometimes she hasn't got the right PPE. So we thought, what can we do to support? What can we do to help? And we decided whoever needs it, whether they're from a Black, Asian, minority, ethnic background or not, whether they're Christians or not, 
as long as they're health and social care workers on the front front line and they don't even need to be health and social care they could be frontline workers like bus drivers as somebody got in contact with me working in a special needs school and they said that in their school that they're going back to their fear is that won't have PPE they've been told the PPE has been reserved for those that work in a hospital scenario but they're looking after children with special educational needs and you know as children like to gather together and they may cough and things so everybody's living in fear and I realized with COVID-19 there's a structural inequality anyway which puts BME people on the front line and more at risk of um, getting COVID but not only that the fear and the anxiety that people are going through many of us have very close relatives, friends, colleagues that have suffered from COVID-19 and has passed away. So post-COVID, I believe there'll be like post-traumatic stress disorder. There'll be so much fear and anxiety that's actually lowers people's immunity, that's putting them more at risk. And I felt from a psychological point of view, a mental health point of view, we need to be supporting our people. And what I found is, I had a friend got in contact with me saying that she just asked the nurses on their ward, she's a head nurse in one of the local hospitals, she just asked the nurses on the ward, does anybody want prayer before we start work? And she said, meet in the staff room. They, the nurses literally ran out of the room, into the staff room, and next minute she's FaceTiming me saying, there's these nurses here, they need you to pray for me, pray for you, pray for them right now. And it happened on several occasions and it's been happening on a regular basis Whereas before, nobody wanted to even talk about prayer, but now the nurses, especially the BME, because, you know, whether they're Muslims or Christians, whatever their faith is, they all pray and they trust God, and that's where their faith and their strength comes from. So going forward, we want to be able to support them in that way. So as well as firstly being able to provide the PPE through the support of the appeal, getting the funding to get the PPE, we've also got psychologists, social workers and psychotherapists that are willing to support and we're going to have a chat line a prayer line that anybody that needs prayer anybody that needs support in any way will be there to support them regardless of their denomination regardless of what their faith they're in we believe in god and we know that god is able to change things and improve things for them and it's really good working with the world college of nursing that fully endorse what we're doing and nhs england and nhs improvement have actually got, have now put a strategic nurse advisor in place for spirituality and faith, because they realize, especially in the BME community, that we're used to having the support of our faith to bolster us, to give us the resilience to do our work. And it's now coming more to the forefront and they're meeting together and discussing how we going forward, can we support not only BME nurses, but all nurses. They've got health and wellbeing hubs in most hospitals. They've got psycholo psychologists on hand. And I've had a phone call from a couple of NHS trusts saying, could you give me contact details for actually black psychologists because of the cultural um, needs, cultural sensitivities around how we grieve, how we mourn. They wanted somebody that they can actually identify with that, that would understand where they're coming from without giving a long story. Because as you know, in different cultures, people grieve and they uh, mourn in different ways. By having a psychologist that understands them, it makes it so much easier for them and it helps, makes them to, helps them to sort of support whatever they're going through. So we're helping in that area as well. So it's a real ple pleasure to be here this evening and to be working with those, with Ascension Trust and with Churches Together for Britain and Ireland. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, 
Dr. John, thank you to all our speakers um, this evening. Um, you've heard what they've had to say about this particular issue and the work that they're doing. Uh, so now we sort of move to the uh, interactive uh, section. I've um, asked folk to send in their questions and they've been mm -hmm. thick and fast, which is great. Uh, so what we will now do is have that, uh, have that conversation. Um, so we uh, were sent in a question uh, from uh, Sandra Bailey, who uh, says she's a, a nurse, a black nurse, and she says, working alongside my BAME colleagues, at times the going gets very tough and challenges our faith. Sorts of things that you've been talking about there, Dr. John. And then she says, what advice would the panel give us in relation to how we can use our faith to cope better and survive. So I'll put that question to you first, Dr. John. Chichi, you please uh, jump in and, and Les, you can add something to it. So over to you first, John. Um, in what way can we use our faith, did you say? Yes, 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 yes. Well, first and foremost, God is in control. He sees all things. And all we need to do is just pray. He said, ask. He's the one that gives us the strength. He said, if any man lacks wisdom, just ask him for wisdom and guidance in what we should do. And when we're praying, he will show us exactly what we need to do and how we need to deal with things. And also we have our gut feeling as well. If we feel that we're in an area that we feel that we're at risk, then we need to be, have the confidence to say to our manager, sorry, I don't feel comfortable to do this. I need support and actually be able to get that support and ensure that if there's risk assessments that need to be done, the government has agreed now that there should be risk assessments done for all staff, not just BAME, but all staff. But bearing in mind that the BME people are more likely to be at risk of, of COVID, risk assessments can be done. They can be seen by occupational health and they can also see the health and wellbeing um, service in their local hospital. But you've got your local churches and I'm sure your pastors and leaders in your church will be willing to pray with you and for you. Dr Chichi. Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And I think that I can fully empathise with Sandra. Um, our job in the health sector can at times be overwhelming, especially at these times of crisis. And so with our faith, but also with our um, self-awareness hats on, it's important to be very self-aware of when you are reaching that boiling point of burnout and anxiety. You know, unfortunately in our community, and this is what we're also seeking to highlight, mental health sometimes has been a stigma and people um, have found it difficult to say, hey, I'm, I'm stressed, I'm really, really, I really can't cope right now. And I'm so glad that I can fall back on my faith, but I'm so also very much open to taking time off work when I feel burnt out, accessing the right type of counseling that might help me. You know, we have other things going on in our lives, our very busy lives with children that we're homeschooling at the moment with all sorts of things going on, uncertainties. So it's very important to speak to someone, whether that's your pastor that can pray with you. And that's something that I really find really useful in my life that I've got people around me that I can reach out to, to say, hey, you know, I'll say, hey, Dr. Joan, help me pray with me and this is really important this is part of my faith my faith is not just about me it's about the people around me and that's what standing together community appeal is all about it's about getting around people and supporting each other at this time two is better than one and that, that's you know that's a very biblical perspective Les I'm not going to ask you that question I'm not because there's a question 
that I would really want to put to you. And that's from Liam Olmark. And he says, do you think that those who are calling for the lockdown to end quicker are properly taking into account the disproportionate and devastating impact that COVID-19 is having on BAME communities? So he's basically saying, you know, the, the fact that they want everyone to go back to work, are they, do they have BAME communities in mind when they're making these decisions? I, I think, Richard, the fact is that the government number one priority is the economy. Mm -hmm. And I think this whole issue is much further down the scale. And that's why I believe that there's an urgency within the church and our community to really make this a big issue. Because what we are seeing is if something is not a priority in society, it will continue. There'll be a lot of lives lost, a lot of pain, a lot of trauma. And I think that the government is thinking up there, the economy, how do we sort that out? The big business, the small business. And I think that's a good thing. That's an important thing. But at the same time, the, the government has a, a moral duty, a moral duty to ensure that its citizens, particularly those that, you know, like Boris Johnson, who took sick with COVID, it was a doctor, a nurse, you know, it was a cleaner, all those people who looked after him and ensure. So I don't think that, you know, it's a big priority. I don't think so it's a big priority. It's not up there as a high one. And that's why I'm hoping that from this meeting and going forward, that we could present this to the government with the rest to say, this has to be a real priority within the government to ensure that this never ever happens again. And, and I'm gonna go back to the previous question as what Sanja raised. I was astonished that the, an organization like the NHS who employ 1.4 million people, and in terms of partial care and spirituality, it's not really there again on the agenda. So with all those people who go to church, who worship Jesus, there's not enough provision for them spiritually to support them. And I was pretty surprised to see how there was a lack in that. And so I, one of the things I've been looking at is to encourage and challenge the NHS to ensure that there are many trained, qualified ministers and laities who could volunteer their time or could work with the NHS to bring partial care I'd like to see chaplains, more chaplains coming from our community that could reflect those staff and patients within those hospitals. Excellent. Uh, Dr. John, do you want to uh, take that question? Um, I do know that NHS England Improvement have now just recently, this year, um, employed a strategic nurse advisor to look at spirituality and health. I think going forward, they will be looking at it. And the fact that our previous um, Chief Nursing Officer Sarah Mullally is now the Bishop of London, or England, I think it's Bishop of London, London. and our current um, Chief Nursing Officer is also a Christian as well. I think that makes a big difference. Yes. Excellent. So we've got a, another question, and this is from uh, Monique Thomas, and she says, how can stroke should white church leaders respond to the issues impacting BIM members in their congregations. So uh, Les, um, actually, yeah, I'll put that to you, Les, first, and then to, to you, Dr. Chichi. I, I think it's important. It's, it's an interesting question, 
And I think it's a very pertinent question and apt question. And I say this to say this because, you know, I work with a lot of folks, black, white, Asians up and down the country. And I constantly say to my brothers and sisters um, who are white, I say to them, listen, remember there's only one church. There's only one king and, the, and one kingdom. And all of us who are Christian are part of that. And remember what the scripture says, we are our brother's keepers. So whether you're black or whether you're white, every church leader up and down the country should be asked in their congregation, are you a nurse? Are you a doctor? Are you, do you work in the hospital? And get them, hear them, pray with them, and find out how can we support you? Okay, because it is a spiritual, it is a partial, and it's a justice matter. So no congregation, you know, are exempt from that. Every con leader should be asking those very key questions. Secondly, I think that they should be saying, we need to get behind this appeal and this project as a church to ensure that we could lend our voice and our support to say to the community, we are part of standing with you, regardless of whether you're black, white, Asian, Chinese, or whoever, we, the church, are standing with you to supply you with PPE. If we don't do that, then I think we missed the boat. Excellent. Dr. Chichi, could you jump in and then uh, we will move on to the next question. Yes, absolutely. I mean, to the, the person who asked that question, I would love to come to your church. That's the first question. So a little plug there, because I had a wonderful opportunity on Friday to speak to a congregation uh, via a webinar like this. You know, I spoke to a congregation of about 20, 30 people just to demystify and answer some of their questions. Um, what I'm finding as a doctor right now with this COVID-19 pandemic is patients are a little bit frightened to come and speak to us, especially at the peak. People just feared. They were also trying to protect the NHS, but there was so much fear and anxiety in the system that actually they stopped calling us and they waited till late for other things to present and overwhelm their health that was unnecessary. So part of the work that I want to do is to reach the grassroots. There are doctors who look like me, who sound like me, who look different from me, but all of us are united with that one goal that actually we know that the huge role that preventative medicine, preventative actions can actually take to look after our patients. So I personally, and I know the team that I work with, would welcome reaching people's congregations. And as I said, you know, technology has proved absolutely a godsend for us to reach congregations that I may not have had time to, to talk to. These are all patients, their lives matter. So I would say to that vicar, that pastor, that minister, get behind us. We are here for you and we are here to help your congregation um, in every way that we can. Thank you. So we've got a question from uh, uh, Reverend uh, Indigit Bogle. And I'm going to put this one to you, John, first. And um, Les and, and, and Dr. Chichi, if you put your thinking caps on for this one as well, that would be great. And it's this, and he says, he's, um, are BAME people more at risk because of their ethnicity or because of the injustices such as being at the back of the queue for PPE and taking on greater stress as BAME leaders? Okay, <laughs> that's the question that's been asked on several occasions. Um, 
I personally don't think it's anything to do with our genes or our biology. And I heard Professor Kevin Benton, who's the professor that's been employed by public health, by um, NHS and Public Health England, to research into the disproportionality of BME people being affected. I think first and foremost, it's because of the, the structural inequalities in that the BME people are more likely to be on the front line face-to-face, -face, hands-on contact with patients. They have very little um, opportunity to go up the career ladder because of structural racism or inequalities in the NHS, not because they don't want to, it's because they've not given the opportunity to, or they've always been knocked back. So it's very difficult for them to get up, into, up the ladder to um, senior positions in the NHS. Also, many BME staff for whatever reason are agency nurses, some of them are agency nurses and they're coming into the organisation and being sent straight to the COVID positive ward, some of them without adequate PPE. And I personally believe that many of the, those that have died may not have died if they'd had the right PPE. I was even listening today to somebody telling me about the hospital has been um, divvied up into the hot space where those are PPE positive patients and then there's the amber those that they're not sure whether they've got it or not and those that are the green zone that haven't got it but those in the amber zone are dressed differently to those that's in the green zone and the red zone however I read in the newspapers today where a patient came onto a ward that they didn't think had COVID but within a couple of days 15 members of staff and 13 patients got COVID because the patient was put on the wrong ward because they hadn't been tested. So I think testing is really important and being really clear about making sure that everyone has adequate protection. And the way I say it is that if you were going into war, we would be all wearing the same uniform, we'd all have the same weaponry and armor and protection. So why is there a different one depending on where you are? And if you notice, there's no one that's died in ITU where the people are on ventilation and there's aerosol um, generated um, particles because they've all got the full um, PPE gear on. Whereas in other areas where they're like A&E, where the front facing, or you're going into people's homes where you're not sure whether they've got um, COVID-19 or not, they haven't got the adequate protection in case the patient that they're looking after, the person that they're seeing has got COVID. So I feel they need to have the right protection. So it's not just about ethnicity, it's just that we're just disproportionately at the bottom of the pile, at the front line, where we're more likely to get it. Les, do you want to uh, add to that? You know, I was thinking about the Gulf War, and I don't know if you remember, one of the things that was a, a mighty uproar was soldiers were sent to battle with the, you know, not sufficient equipment. And, you know, inquiries shown that everyone knew that they didn't have the right equipment. And I think that what has happened here is that obviously um, the nurses, the doctors, those who are working in the CHS didn't have the equipment. And it's obvious to a lot of us that some people were down further down the chain in terms of getting the equipment. Now, that shouldn't be the case. That mm. shouldn't be the case. It should be that everyone who worked in that hospital gets the right equipment because they're doing a great job that's one of the reasons why we clap for nurses and doctors and NHS workers on, on a Thursday, because we believe that everyone there is doing the right job. I also believe that, you know, the, the, the reality is that we've got to face the fact that prejudice, 
injustice, racism still exists. It's, you know, that's what it is. And we cannot ignore that. And that's why it's important for us that when something like this happened as the church, we stand up to say, no, this is wrong. This is wrong. And we must ensure that it never happens again. Excellent. Um, Dr. Chichi, I'm going to uh, put to you a question from a Jim Robertson. And he says this, and I think he sort of touches upon some of the things that you've mentioned uh, uh, earlier. And it's that uh, should faith groups have a stronger voice in the public square? And how might they progress this? So it's about faith groups being able to have more of a say to government and to uh, uh, in uh, civil society. So over to you. Yes, is the answer. Um, I strongly believe that advocacy remains an important role for the Christian community. Um, this is something that Professor Kevin Fenton echoed um, on Friday when he conducted a webinar addressing this particular issue. Um, he admonished us all to not underestimate the importance of speaking truth to powers on behalf of those who are not in settings where decisions are being made and whose voice may, you know, may be overlooked. So as a Christian leader in my church, it is my responsibility to speak up by all means. It's as much my responsibility to pray for that individual as it is to speak up. And if we look at the wider um, political scene, faith is a protected characteristics. And, you know, we heard from the Muslim faith group on a webinar on Friday also, and they too are echoing this same concern. Faith needs to be addressed. Faith needs to be looked at. We as leaders, we as professionals need to be that voice. So um, yes is the answer. And I think that we all need to do this. And certainly in my family, I have been encouraging people, please write to your MPs and tell them what you're going through. Don't keep your, your grievances to yourself because actually you may have the wrong end of the stick so much, you know, not so much, but you may have the wrong end of the stick. They could be, do, you know, they could be doing something for you, but you need to voice your concerns. And, and I would say to everybody in whatever sphere you are, voice your concerns, whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Muslim, whether you're a person of no faith or all faiths, it's important that we voice our concerns um, and have those open discussions. I think, Richard, if I could step in there, yeah, but okay. mm -hmm. I think that I think for far too often um, on these issues that, you know, people have been saying, where is the voice of the church? Yeah. Um, for far too long, people are saying, I hear everyone speaking, but not the church. I think the church should be um, in that marketplace because it's delivering the goods in terms of social action, um, is in social justice, is, is fighting, is being ad, uh, even advocacy for people. It's actually doing a powerful thing. And I think that it's important that we get our government, those in the NHS, to listen to what we are saying because we are there for the people and for justice. So I think for me, at this time, the church cannot just say it's going to pray about these things. I think that's a cop-out. We need to pray. I'm a man of prayer. But as the Bible talks, faith without works is dead. And I just pray that the church in the United Kingdom and Ireland, I'm praying right now that they will not keep silent on this business, but they will be counted for to stand with their brothers and sisters 
and stand with our community to say, this has been an act of injustice and we need to ensure that um, matters are dealt with properly. And Dr. John? Um, as a London representative on the Royal College of Nursing Council, I wrote a letter um, jointly with the, the chief exec to every single MP in London to say that this is of concern to us and we would like them to be able to speak up and ensure that the voice of the community is heard. Also, I spoke to senior people in the NHS saying that one of the reasons why we don't see change and transition as quickly as we should is there's no diversity of thought. There's just a group of people in groupthink and they don't have people with different perspectives and different views around the table. And I'm advocating that there needs to be BME people, Christian people, people that think differently to the way the government thinks and thinks differently to the way the NHS thinks around that table when they're making decisions. And maybe if they were around the decision-making table, some of the things that has happened wouldn't have happened. And even going forward now, things shouldn't be happening because we're now speaking and listening to the voices of other people. Over the last three weeks, I've been on so many webinars, so many Zoom rooms, one with um, Professor um, Fenton on Friday, and following that, with um, the BAME Health Professionals Network, where we actually spoke very, we listened to over 1,000 people listened and asked questions, and we answered their questions, and we've written a report to go directly up to government. The Chief Nursing Officers Black and Ethnic Minority Strategic Advisory Group, of which I'm a member, I used to be a chair for five years, We've had our webinars across nine regions in England, and we've written a report that is going directly to government and to the NHS. We've, even in the Ascension Trust, whatever we're doing, we're making sure that the voice of the people are heard and sent right up to the top, to the centre, where decisions are being made so they can hear from our perspective as well. And hopefully that will bring about change. Thank you. Um, we've got a, a, another question, and this is from Edwin Quilden. And... He's uh, asking if there can be any correlation or connection between uh, COVID-19, BAME communities and a lack of vitamin D. Uh, been reading a lot about that in the press uh, recently. Um, could I put that to you first, Dr. Chichi, as a medical uh, person and then to you, Dr. John? Okay, fantastic. I mean, there is evidence um, that people who live in colder climates, especially people of colour, um, do have lower levels of vitamin D, though it's not necessarily in the range that is classed as clinically deficient. We have different ranges and different approaches of treatment. So I just need to make that clear. Um, and there is national guidance around the importance of, of those living in cooler climates, especially during the colder months of the year. There is guidance about taking a regular vitamin D supplement. And this is something I definitely advocate to all my patients. So vitamin D is important to boost immunity it's there to help with muscle function um, and you know we do find that people who are of color um, it can be a bit harder to absorb it through the skin especially if they're indoors quite a lot or if they're wearing um, you know very dark clothing or religious clothing which presents prevents their skin from um, accessing the sunlight but however the data as to whether vitamin d is a big player in this is lacking 
um, I have to say, um, because we know in conversations and in the data that we have looked at with other countries in cold climates um, across Europe, who also have a large population of people of Black and Asian minority and ethnic, um, uh, you know, population, that this same, you know, disparity is not pointing towards vitamin D. Um, so the answer is, it's not just the vitamin D issue, it's not a vitamin D issue, but we do know that people can be deficient in vitamin D and it's important to take a supplement to um, increase your levels of vitamin D. For some people, they may be clinically deficient. So I would advise, you know, those people who, um, you know, for whatever reason, even either because of their religion and the attire that they're wearing, if they feel that they're at risk of vitamin D deficiency, to speak to their GP. So this isn't, this isn't an issue about people taking large doses of vitamin D to ward off this virus. And I would not be advocating that. I think that issue here about COVID-19 is multifactorial. It's looking at the socio-economic factors. It's looking at the underlying health conditions and it's looking at the workplace and the occupation that you do, the viral load. So it's multifactorial. It's not a vitamin D issue. And I think that I just need to take that space to demystify mm -hmm. that because so much mm -hmm. goes on around WhatsApp. Um, but please, it's not a vitamin D issue. John, do you want to add anything to that? I think Dr. Chichi um, responded to that quite eloquently. It is a multifactorial um, situation. And I think sometimes we will latch onto one thing and think if we do this one thing, that would improve it in all areas. But black and minority ethnic minority staff are more likely to have underlying comorbidities health conditions such as diabetes, high blood pressure, renal problems, on top of maybe having deficiency in vitamin D. So there's lots of other um, areas and other things that we need to look at as well. It's not just vitamin Ds. And as she mentioned, if the viral load is high because you're on the front line where you're actually in contact with people that have got um, um, COVID-19, then you're more at risk of getting it. If you're in a low economic um, area where your health and well-being is not as it should be, then you're more at risk. Your immunity level is going to be lower as well. So there's many, there's, it's multifactorial. It's quite complex. It's not just one issue. Okay, excellent. Um, time is marching on. Uh, we will uh, aim to finish at uh, 8.30 because this is an, an hour long conversation. Um, so I think we've just about got enough time for one uh, more question and I could encourage our panelists if they could sort of, um, be kind of curt in terms of their response to this one because what I want you to do is to sort of have a sort of a final sum up and also I want you in particular Les to talk about uh, some of the work that you're doing or more of it about the work that you're doing with the Ascension Trust and to tell folks you know how they can get into get in contact with uh, the Ascension Trust to find out more and perhaps participate in uh, some of the things that uh, you've mentioned. So the last question is, um, and I'll, I'll put this one to, um, to Dr. Chichi and to Dr. John, and it's about uh, statistics with regard to BAME communities and whether there are differentiated, differentiated statistics in terms of COVID-19 amongst the different BAME community groups. Well, I've, I've seen um, some of the statistics. They haven't broken them all the way down. They, this BAME sort of lumps everybody together and we're all yeah. completely different. I mean, I know in the Filipino community, they've had over 40 of them that have died from that work in healthcare. With the doctors, 
um, Asian doctors, particularly GPs, there seem to be a high number of those as well, and Zimbabweans as well, but I haven't seen any figures broken down more than that. They've just put African, Caribbean, Asian, so I can't, I haven't got a breakdown of all those figures. Chichi? Before you uh, jump in there, Dr. Chichi, we um, got an email from a, uh, a reverend, let me just get his name, um, if I can find his name. Uh, oh gosh, it sort of escaped me, but he was asking about figures pertaining to the East Asian community, primarily the, the, the Chinese community, and, and whether there are any statistics uh, regarding that particular community or cohort vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, COVID-19. Um, as Joan said, you know, there is still a lot of work to be done about the reporting of ethnicity and the impact of COVID-19. Obviously, we all know that when um, COVID-19 reached our shores, um, there were a lot of concerns about um, foreign travel um, and the importation, would you say, of COVID-19 onto our shores. So initially, the advice that we were giving patients was about related to a history of foreign travel to uh, places in the Far East and, and those countries broadened as the weeks went on. So in terms of specific data relating to the impact on the, the, the communities from the Far East, from um, Asia, um, I can certainly relate to, I can certainly refer to the statistics on the disproportionate discrimination that those communities are facing. The Chinese community are facing a lot of um, racism directed at them, which is an issue of justice that we must also stand for as a church. Um, they have seen a, a you know, tremendous rise in, in, in attacks, racist physical attacks on them that, you know, that they would probably see in a year. And they've already seen that in three months, you know, in three months from the time from January to March, you've had 267 racial, racially motivated attacks on patients or, or people of uh, Chinese and Oriental descent um, the, in the UK. This is, this is absolutely not on. So, even though the disease may not be reported as disproportionately affecting one particular BMAE community, because as Joan said, we're all, you know, we're all sort of, you know, grouped together. But there are groups that are unfortunately facing unprecedented levels of abuse at this time. And as a church, we must stand up for this as well. Um, we must stand up for our brothers and sisters in our community at this time. The pandemic has unearthed not just a physical disease on, on the body, but actually a society disease. And that worries me tremendously going forward, especially for our children as they go back to school, as they have to mix in different bubbles. What will they be facing on the playground because of their race? I think this is, this is, this is really important that we look at this and we stand up for it as a church. Thank you very much, Chichi. That question was actually uh, uh, put by uh, Mark Nam, who's uh, from Bristol. So just to sort of put a name to the person who uh, asked that question. So we've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, Les, could I just um, ask you to uh, speak briefly about the Ascension Trust, uh, the work that you're doing on this once more, and also how people can get involved in what you're doing? Because I'm sure they've... Um, heard a lot of interesting things this evening and they're uh, chomping at the bits in terms of how they can be a part of the work that you're talking about. So if you could please just uh, say briefly, say a little more about that and then we will wrap things up. Thank you very much. 
I think a lot of people know about Ascension Trust, but there's still a lot of people who don't. Ascension Trust is the umbrella body um, that founded street pastors, and, and we have street pastors all over the United Kingdom. And not only do we do street pastors, but we have people on the railway stations. We have what we call response pastors. So we are used to responding to needs in terms of people. You would know, Richard, that we have we work together, churches together, Britain of Ireland and others, Southern Diocese, London City Mission and others, Church of God of Prophecy work looking at serious youth violent crime. And we've taken that up passionately and said, let's form a coalition, let's do something. And for me, this whole thing about COVID-19 and our community and people facing that, it's what for me, it is the same sort of issue that here's our people, here's people in the community who are saying, hey, Ascension Trust, hey, church, can you do something? And as the CEO of Ascension Trust, um, you know, I, I came back in from Ghana and all of this is unfold. We are a charity, we're trying to do all sorts of things and this has hit us. But I am so, in one sense, so glad that I could say that the church has put this on its agenda and I'm glad that there's the trust and the directors of the trust are saying, look, we've got to get involved here to help folks. And so what we're trying to do and what we are doing, um, we launched the PPE and you can go to the Ascension Trust website. That's www.ascensiontrust.org.uk. Or you could send myself an email at l.isaac at ascensiontrust.org.uk. Um, you can send me a, an email there, and Dr. Joan and Dr. Chichi have got an email, similar email. And we're just saying over these next four, five, six months, or maybe this whole year, that actually we need to see major changes, and we need to be able to bring support and encouragement and help to people in our congregations, in our communities, because there are people who don't come to our local church, but they live in our communities. Their grandmother goes to our church or a member of the family is connected in some way to our church. We want to let them know that actually the church, we're not just praying for them, but we want to stand with them. And we want to create the platform that they could be a voice. They could be a voice that would be heard and knowing that we, the church, are standing with them. So I'm asking you, those who are listening to do get involved, do get beside us. Um, I'm so glad that we got some good partners, but we need more, that we could make those representations um, to the prime minister, to the various offices there, and we could you know, ensure that something good will come out of all this pain, all this mistrust, all this anguish, something good will come out that we as a nation never reach to this point again where our people are to sacrifice their lives and when they need not have done that and with the right equipment, with the right care, people's lives would be saved and families would be much better. So please do join us, um, do visit the website and do get involved with what we are doing. Okay, thank you very much, Les. Uh, and we're more or less out of time. How uh, time flies when you're... Um, engaged in stimulating conversation and debate. I'd like to thank our three uh, speakers, uh, Dr. Joan, Dr. Chichi, and uh, uh, the uh, 
irrepressible uh, Les Isaac uh, for joining us this evening. I would also like to thank all of you out there who have actually uh, tuned in to listen to this conversation. I'm sure like me, you have been um, given lots of food for thought uh, and also energized in terms of finding out more about what the churches are doing, but more importantly, how you can be a part of this particular conversation. So it's not so much about words, it's also about actions, how we collectively can work together to try and address what is clearly a justice issue. Um, so thank you very much for that. As I said at the outset, we will um, endeavor to uh, answer all of the questions that have been sent to us. And we thank you everyone for sending in questions. And again, sort of apologies for not being able to respond to all of them. But what we will seek to do is uh, send these uh, uh, responses to you via email in the days to come. Just to briefly say that uh, uh, Churches Together in Britain and Ireland also has resources on COVID-19 in terms of how churches can respond to this in prayer uh, and uh, other ways that sort of complement what Les has mentioned this evening and that's available on the CTBI website which is www.ctbi.org.uk. Truth to Power podcast is produced by Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. The music is by Nikolai Heidlis, used under a Creative Commons licence.